Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and we'll read there beginning in verse 8 in just a moment. Revelation chapter 2. Next, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a break from the book of Revelation next month. In the month of February, those four Sundays, we're going to study together churchwide the book of Jonah. And it is a great book of the Bible, and I want to encourage you to participate. We wrote this. In fact, it's for every life group of every age, as well as the worship services. We wrote the material ourselves, and it's a great study, and you learn so much more about it. It really applies to our lives in so many ways. This book of Jonah is a great book. From the youngest to the oldest in our church, we're going to study the book of Jonah together. I want to ask you in the month of February to give me two hours every week to go to a worship service and to a life group. And if you've not been into a life group, we'll help you find a class just a, just a couple weeks away. We'd love for you to get in a class and you'll get the most out of this study as we study the book of Jonah each week. And I hope you'll, I hope you'll participate. It's going to be a great study. Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And we're looking, as we go through this book of the Bible, we come to these seven churches where Jesus speaks to these churches. And it's really not just for the churches of long ago, but for us as well. It's for our church, our age for your life, and uh, we see something from each of these churches. And last week, we saw the church at Ephesus, man, an active church and serving in so many ways, and yet they left their first love. And this week, we're going to look at the church at Smyrna, and we'll see something of what it means to be faithful. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to begin with verse 8. Jesus is speaking here, and here's what he says. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Well, the church of Smyrna is an example of a church that's faithful to God in difficult circumstances. And just as the church at Ephesus had some um, unique issues God wanted them to deal with, so does the church at Smyrna. And some of you will relate to this church. Because you know something about facing difficulties or problems or struggles. God's called you to be faithful in a world that is not always so excited about the things of God. Is that fair to say? And so let's note four lessons that help us to be faithful. Four lessons that we see from Jesus' word to the church at Smyrna. And I want to encourage you to write these four down. Because God perhaps will use this in your life as well to help you to be faithful. This is a generation that needs faithfulness. It doesn't take much for the average follower of Christ in the Western world, in America in particular, to sort of quickly go astray. It doesn't take much. And let's see what it's like to be faithful despite the circumstances. Four principles to note. Number one, the first lesson I want you to note is to focus on who Jesus is. One lesson that will help us to be faithful is to focus on who Jesus is. And often the Bible tells us about the nature of God. Now, God cares about what we do, of course, but what we do in many ways comes out of what we believe, what we understand about who God is. And as we understand more of who God is, the nature of God himself, 
we understand more of what God wants from us, what God wants us to be. So let's, let's note what Jesus says about himself in verse 8. Jesus said to John, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the messenger in, of the church in Smyrna. He says, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Let's just note three things about who Jesus is here. First note, he is eternal. He describes himself as the first and the last. That is, before anything was, Jesus was. God has always been. We can look to eternity future and know that God made us for eternity. But the Lord can look back to eternity past and and there is no end. And the Bible says that God made all that we can see, all that we know, all that there is. So there are these two competing philosophies. Much of our world says everything came from nothing. And God says someone made this something. Everything came from nothing. But the Lord says someone made this something. And the Bible tells us that God created this world. In fact, not just that God in general, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created this world. Everything that was created, the Bible says, Jesus created. He is a part of everything that is created. Being in very nature, God himself, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything that we can see created by the Lord. And in this generation, we can see so how vast the universe is, so far from this little planet Earth, how vast we're learning more and more all the time about the vastness of the universe, everything God could create at his spoken word. And we can see, drill down to the smallest, smaller and smaller and smaller details all the time, the molecules and the atoms, and God created all of that. The incredible complexity of the cell and the incredible diversity of our, of our own planet, everything created by the Lord. And we need to understand that he is eternal because through this we can gain his perspective. He's the first and the last. He knows something about eternity and the value of eternity. And I want you to see something of that perspective. That eternity matters. What we do matters for eternity. And we ought to be thinking beyond just this world. This world is short. It's the brevity of this life. And God wants us to see the scope of eternity and that what we do in this brief moment we call life has impacts on eternity itself. We ought to be living with eternity in mind. Too often we're like the child who would just like eat lots of cookies before, right before lunch and not think about the consequences. My grandchildren, if I just gave them cookies, they would just eat the cookies and ruin their lunch. Their grandfather would do the same. I'll just tell you, if I'm honest, he would do the same thing. But I know from life and circumstances and from trial and error that that's not a good idea. That I ought to eat a balanced diet on occasion and that that's something more than just sweets and sugars. That I need to put off dessert sometimes for after uh, lunch rather than before lunch. And if I'll think properly, if I'll gain God's perspective on eternity, I see that there are some things that just matter so deeply. Isn't it interesting how often the things... For any, even for many of us who name the name of Christ, we think so little about eternity. The things that last and count and matter. 
and put so much focus on the things that won't matter one moment past this moment. We put so much focus on this world and so little on the next. So much focus on this life and so little on the next. And God's reminding us that he is the first and the last. He wants us to gain his perspective. In fact, the book of Proverbs is a book filled with wisdom. The book of the Bible tells us about wisdom. God's perspective. And wisdom is to begin to see the world as God sees it. And God wants us to see his perspective in life. He is eternal. He is the first and the last. And we also note here that he's loving and sacrificial. Jesus said, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead. The one who was dead. We are reminded that Jesus loved us so much, he sacrificed his life for ours. He died in our place. And we need to know this because it teaches us that we can be forgiven of sin's penalty. There's always a penalty to sin. There's always a penalty to sin. Sin leads to something. The Bible tells us it leads to death. There are consequences to our actions. We want to say, do whatever you want, no consequences. But a just and holy God reminds us there are always consequences to our choices. So whatever you do, whatever choices you make, there are consequences that will follow. I'm not talking about for other people, but for you specifically. And the Bible says there are consequences to sin, and that sin separates us from God who is holy. And if we got what we deserved, we would spend eternity separated from God. But God is loving, and God is sacrificial, and Jesus is the one who died. He died for my sin, and I can be forgiven of of sin's penalty because of what Jesus has done for me. That's how much he loves. That's the nature of his love, his sacrificial love. And then notice as well that he is powerful. The Bible says he is the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life and came to life. But as the Bible is telling us here that we can have hope and victory. Did you know you can have hope and victory? Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He conquered even the power of death, even the power of hell. And he came back to life. And because of that, we know we can have hope and we can have victory. Jesus died for us, but Jesus rose for us. And he offers us hope and victory. And that's an important thing because we bring to this place all of the, all of the need for hope and victory. Maybe you thought there is no hope for me. Maybe you came to this place with some addiction. And you won't have been the first. There are many who have come to this place with addiction. The Lord brings hope. He brings hope. And we can have victory over addiction through the Lord. More than just our own willpower and our own strength, but the Lord himself has the power to help us to overcome addiction or habits. Plenty of habits in our lives, even some unhealthy or some bad habits. And habits become a part of our life, even some terrible habits. Pornography or unhealthy habits that cause great problems for us. But the Lord has the power to help us to find victory over our habits or our past. Maybe you have some pain and some wound in your past that is so deep and you feel hopeless because of that pain. You've been wronged or you've been harmed or you've been hurt. And we don't take that lightly. But God is able to overcome your past, all the pain that you face, or failures. Maybe you made promises to God and commitments to God, and you didn't keep them very well. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus reminds us that God is bigger 
in our problems and our pain and our addictions and our struggles. And we can have victory in Christ. And we can find strength to overcome those problems, those struggles, those besetting sins, those issues of life. Because we have a Lord who is eternal. He's the first and the last. He's loving and sacrificial. The one who was dead, he's powerful. He came to life. So years ago in a devotional book, I came across this concept. I was probably in my early 20s, and I just remember how this helped me to think differently, and perhaps this will help you. So the book talked about, this little booklet maybe even, and it talked about the difference between uh, gazing and glancing. And it talked about how often we gaze at our circumstances and our problems. And I found myself saying, yeah, that's me. I mean, I, I'm very well aware of the circumstances or the problems that I face. <clears throat> and there are plenty of them, right? Plenty. And we make that our gaze and we'll glance at God. God, I don't know if you know this, but I have this terrible problem and it's too big for me and I don't know how to handle it and I don't like it. And we just glance at God. But we gaze, our focus is on a problem and occasionally we'll glance to God, God, hey, just want to make sure you're aware of the problem I'm facing. And the suggestion was, what if you change that and said, my gaze is going to be on the Lord and my glance at my problems. That is, we glance at our problems. We're not unaware of circumstances. We're not ignoring the problems we face in life. And some of you are facing those things I talked about, addictions and habits and, and your past and failures and that's, you say, man, that's, those are real. But that's not my focus. My circumstances, that's not my focus. My focus is on the Lord, the one who is the first and the last, the one who, who died in my place, the one who rose from the grave. That's my focus. Now, I'm not unaware of my problems, and I'm going to bring my problems to the Lord, but my gaze, my focus is on him. So my, my gaze is on the solution and not the problem. And very often... I found myself, and sometimes still do, focused on the problem instead of on the solution. And the Lord ultimately is the solution to the problems that I'm facing. And I, I want to just encourage you, perhaps God would use that in your life. I wonder if the church of Smyrna, who was so faithful to God, God never even condemns them for anything all, through this whole passage, the letter that he sends to them. I wonder if it's because they're focused was so much on the Lord. And they knew he was the first and the last. He's eternal, man. He, his perspective is different than the world's. And they realized, man, he is loving and sacrificial. I don't have to ever wonder if he cares about me because he went to the cross for me. And he is powerful. Death itself couldn't conquer him. And so I can trust him with every circumstance. I'm not unaware of the problems I face. But my focus is on him. And I wonder if that isn't a part of the secret of this church at Smyrna. The, the reason they were so faithful, they focused on who Jesus is. And perhaps you found yourself, like many in this world, more focused on the problems and the difficulties and the circumstances. And just every once in a while sort of turning to God, could you help me with this? As opposed to focusing on the Lord and letting him be the answer to the problems that you're facing. Now there's a second lesson I want you to, to learn about being faithful. See the truth of your situation. Would you write that down? See the truth of your situation. So the Lord wanted the church at Smyrna to understand something of the truth, the reality of what they were facing. In verse 9, he said, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, 
but are a synagogue of Satan. So he talks here about the problems. He says, I know. He said that twice here in this verse 9. I know. I know. I know. And he talks about four things. Their affliction, their poverty, the slander they faced, and even what I guess I'll call the toxic religion that they had to deal with. Let's look at each of those. So the Lord is bigger than these problems. And the Lord said, listen, I'm aware of all the problems you're facing. I know your affliction. This word affliction in verse 9 is a strong word. It's not like a, a small problem. I can't get my, uh, you know, I'm a, I can't take care of this little small computer problem I'm facing. I've got this little difficulty in my life. No, it's not that. It's huge. It's a big word. Affliction. Adversity. And struggle. And the Lord said, I know it. I know that's in your life. I know you're facing deep, serious problems. Early in my ministry years, there was a sweet lady named Juanita. She was just, you know, some people are sweeter than others, and she was just one of those sweeter than others. And um, older lady, and she got cancer. And I watched as she just physically deteriorated and eventually uh, died and left this world and left behind her husband and family and friends. And I'll just tell you, watching her faithful to the Lord in affliction was more valuable to my spiritual life than watching a thousand people whose lives were going along well. Watching her faithful in the middle of affliction. This is the church of Smyrna. It's not, they're, not, not, they're not just, it's not just a little bit. It's serious affliction. And some of you know that world. Some of you, when I use the word cancer, that's you. Or people that you love deeply who are struggling in deep ways or facing some serious health problems. Then he says, I know, by the way, I want to remind you, the Lord knows about your problems too, just as he did the church at Smyrna. He says, I know. He's not unaware. Then he says, I know you're, poverty. And again, it's a strong word. It's not just like a little bit. It's not a first world poverty. In our first world poverty, and we live in this nation that has so much. We live in a generation and time where we have so much. There's such plenty. We think of poverty. I can't buy the next gaming system. You know, that's our poverty. And there, but there are places in the world, third world poverty, where there's so much deeper. And that's the church at Smyrna. They're facing such deep poverty. How do we make it. And the Lord said, I know. I know. And then he talks about slander in verse 9. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not. You're being slandered because of your faith, he's saying. Perhaps that's more prevalent in our generation than it's ever been. Like it's not super, um, you know, it's not super exciting for people to be Christians in American culture today always and often it's more ridiculed and in the days of Smyrna they knew something of that. Our generation has social media where we just slander people easily and quickly and even those of us who name the name of Christ can fall into that trap and these people were slandered for their faith ridiculed for their walk with the Lord. Some of you know a little of what that's like. You know what it's like to be mistreated and slandered for your walk with the Lord. And then there is what I would call toxic religion. They said they're not. They're, they say they're Jews, but they're not, and they're, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
So it's not just like a little bit of like mildly off on religion. A synagogue of Satan, a synagogue which ought to be teaching about God, has been controlled by the enemy instead. Some of you know something about toxic religion. Now listen, religion is a wide word, and there are all kinds of backgrounds for people uh, who are here today, of course. But some of you have been hurt in the name of the Lord in some way or some form or fashion. And we have this tendency then, of course, to paint with a very broad brush because of that. I do want to say how sad I am. Sorry that if you've been hurt or wronged in the name of the Lord in some way. And I hate that. I hate that that's happened in, even in churches that name the name of the Lord Jesus. I, I hate that. I do want to say just a word about the value of the church. If you've been wronged in some, in some form or fashion by those who ought to have known better, by people who are religious, I just, I want to say just a word to you in the middle of that. I, I hate that you've gone through that, but I want to say a word to you about the value of the church. Because the church is, the, is a Jesus idea. It's a Jesus idea. Jesus is speaking to the seven churches here. Jesus formed the church. Jesus did it for a reason. And he valued the church. And I do remind you too that every church is imperfect because of the other people that are in the church, but also because of you and me. We are imperfect people. We are in a fallen world. And yet, the Lord values the church. And he made the church for a reason. And we want to do all we can to be the kind of church God wants us to be that will honor his name and do what he wants us to do. But even at that, will be an imperfect church. But I just want you to Remember the value of the church in a generation, even among many who name the name of Christ, who has devalued the very church that the Lord values so highly. I just want to say that word. That maybe some of you are facing affliction or poverty or slander or the pain of some religious toxicity. I want, I want to remind you, the Lord says here, I know. He knows what you're going through. He, he reminds you you live in a fallen, broken world, and he knows about that pain. But I want you to see one more thing. The Lord is saying here that he's, he offers a greater treasure. He says to the church in verse 9, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are, what you say, rich. Did you see that? But you are rich. Affliction, poverty, slander, toxicity, and he says you are rich because he's reminded them of the greater treasure. That what they have is greater than what the world knows. That there is something more valuable than all the gold in all the banks in all the world. That this gospel is the pearl of great price. That's worth whatever the world says. Whatever the world says, this is, this is what you need to chase and this is what you need to have. God's saying there's something greater still. There's greater value. And so he can say to the church at Smyrna, man, you're the rich one. You're the rich one. Do you remember that? Did you watch the Christmas movies, some of them? Did you watch the It's a Wonderful Life, uh, that old movie? It's a tradition for some families. And if you did see it, at the end there's a toast where someone says to George Bailey, you're the, to the richest man in Bedford Falls, they say. Well, if you know the story, you know he's not the richest man in Bedford Falls. Old Man Potter's the richest man in Bedford Falls, for crying out, out loud. Old Man Potter has all of that money and wealth, but they're saying, man, George Bailey has something they don't, he doesn't have. There's a, a deeper kind of wealth. And that sappy old movie it sort of follows this Bible principle that there is something greater than what the world offers you. Whatever, there's something greater than what the world offers you. 
So whatever it is, the world said, man, you, I'll give you this, and it's the greatest thing you'll ever have. God's saying, man, that's, if you have all of that, it's poverty. I've got something greater still. And the Lord said to the church at Smyrna, you're rich. And I, know, I know the problems, he's saying. I know the problems in this broken, fallen world. I'm very aware of that. But I have something better. The Lord's saying, I want you to see the truth in your situation. And I wonder if he isn't saying to the church. I wonder if the reason the church at Smyrna was so faithful was, was because they just knew the truth. They knew that the folks in the other cities that had so much, the people who had who didn't seem to have the same afflictions, they were the poor ones and that they had the pearl of great price and they had the wealth that surpasses all this world has to understand. They saw the truth. There's a third principle I want you to note, a lesson that will help us to be faithful. Be fearless in the face of adversity. Would you write that down? Be fearless in the face of adversity. Let's go to verse 10. Jesus said, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. So let's kind of break this passage down. He says, don't be afraid. That's the command. That's the imperative. Don't be afraid. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it. He says to the church at Smyrna, don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. I don't want you to live in fear. By the way, that applies to us still today. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in always that paralyzing fear of what might happen, what could happen, or the problems of our world. And notice what he says, don't be afraid. And then he says, you're going to suffer. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You're going to suffer, but don't be afraid. There are going to be problems. I, I don't want you to be afraid of them. You're going to suffer. And by the way, in this world, we are going to suffer. The Lord says there are going to be some problems that come because this is a broken, fallen world. He says, don't be afraid. You're going to be tested. In verse 10, he says, look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And there are people right now around the world who are in a prison cell because they're following the Lord Jesus. And the Lord says, don't be afraid, even though you're going to be tested. Some of you are going to be imprisoned. The enemy is going to do all he can to harm you. Don't be afraid. And then he said, don't be afraid, though you are going to experience affliction, he said. Experience affliction. I like that phraseology. Experience affliction. I mean, that's just a fancy way of saying it's going to be bad. There are going to be problems. You're going to have difficulties. But don't be afraid because it's not going to last, he said. It's not going to last. Ten days. Ten days. I think he's using this symbolically to say there's a period of time you're going to face. It's not going to be forever. Who wants to face affliction for ten days even? What he's saying is, it's not going to last. This is short term. He's saying victory is coming. Victory is coming. Now I know you're suffering and I know you're being tested and I know you're experiencing affliction, but victory is coming. I want you to see that. You're, you can be fearless right in the middle of this adversity because I'm telling you, he's saying, the, the problems are going to cease, the tears are going to stop, and there's coming a day of victory. It's the story of the book of Revelation, by the way, that the promise of God is that we will overcome and victory is on its way. It's not going to last. This is MLK uh, weekend, and we remember well the affliction that was faced. MLK, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who would die of an assassin's bullet, but 
1963, he gave a speech that became so famous, the I Have a Dream speech. And I've wondered if the reason he was so fearless in the face of adversity is because he understood something of what the church at Smyrna understood. He said this, here's what MLK said in 1963. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, all men. He said, I have a dream. I can face the adversity of my time because I know what's coming. He went on in that speech to say, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where, where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I wonder if he wasn't fearless in the face of that adversity because he knew something of that promise, that dream. He said later, with this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will one day, that we will be free one day. He was saying, we can face adversity, we can face problems, I can face danger, we can be fearless because victory's coming. And listen, Christian, are there problems in this world? Absolutely. We don't minimize them. The Bible tells us about affliction all the time. Some people have said, you know, listen, if you follow God, you're just never going to have a problem, and God is just sort of obligated to make everything go well. Quite the opposite. Jesus himself says right here, uh, you're going to suffer, you're going to be tested, and you're going to experience affliction. But listen, I'm going to w go with you through every bit of that, and it's not going to last forever, and victory is coming. That's the promise God makes. Now, there's a fourth thing I want you to note. Would you write this down? Remember God's better future. Remember God's better future. In verse 10, the Bible says, Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. In verse 11, he said, Let anyone who has ears to hear, that should be us, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, that is, to, to our church, to our day, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Let's note that God's got a better future for us. He's saying, we can have life rather than death. That's the promise God gives. Be faithful to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life, Jesus said. I want something better for you. Death is not the end. I've got something better for you. I've got the crown of life for you. I know death looks so bleak and, and final, but I've got something better. The crown of life is coming. And even though in this world, ultimately, we will die, I want you to live. By the way, many, everyone's going to die in this world, save the return of the Lord. But not everyone lives in this world. And God wants you to find life. He'll give you abundant life in this world, a life worth living, even through the difficulties of life. And he'll give eternal life, a life with him in, in heaven where there's no more sorrow and no more tear. And then notice as well, he says in verse uh, 11, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. That is, God gives overcoming victory rather than death's final defeat. And it looks for many like death is the final defeat. But God's got a victory, an overcoming victory that he offers. The one who conquers, he says. We can be more than conquerors, the Bible says, in Christ. So let me give you a little spoiler alert about the book of Revelation. Way off, somewhere down in the distant future, we'll get eventually to chapter 20. And we'll see there um, a great white throne judgment. A great white throne judgment. And people from all over the world and People of all kinds of backgrounds will stand before the great white throne judgment. All of those, the Bible says, who don't have their names written 
in the book of life. And those who don't have their names written in the book of life will stand before the great white throne judgment, and it's a judgment according to works, the Bible says, according to works. And let me tell you, if you are judged according to works, there is one sentence for them all. They're all cast into the lake of fire because all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. We've all turned our own, gone our own way and turned from God. All of us have the same problem and need. And if the judgment is according to works, we all fail. But the Bible tells us there's a judgment according to grace. The, Lam the Lamb's book of life is a book that contains the name of every person who has repented of their sins and placed their trust in Christ. And on the basis of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins so that our judgment becomes on the basis of grace. On the, on the basis of works, we all fail. We all fall short. But the grace of God means we can be forgiven and set free and made whole. And we can have victory. And listen, we, we of course, should the Lord tarry, we will all, all face death. But God has promised us no more sorrow and no more tears, no more pain, no more affliction, no more poverty, but his presence and his forgiveness and his love. God's got a better future. And so as Smyrna thought about what they should do and how they should live, they remember that better future. They remember that God's a promise-keeping God and that one day they were going to stand before him and God was going to keep every word he had promised. And they could trust him with eternity. And so they were faithful to him in this world of time and space, even though they faced great adversity and difficulty, because they knew God had something better. And victory was on the way. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. And as you bow with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, maybe the Lord had just kind of spoken to you about faithfulness in the middle of these circumstances. And some of you are facing some real adversity, some genuine affliction. You've got pain and problems, the past, struggles and difficulties. And I wonder if you wouldn't, maybe you've said, man, I, how could I really serve the Lord with all the difficulties of my life and all the problems? And the Lord's saying, I want you to be faithful right in the middle of these problems. I want you to be faithful right now, not just if circumstances get better, but right now. I want you to gaze to be on me and your glance on those circumstances. Some of you here need Christ as Savior, and the Holy Spirit's convicting you that you're a sinner who needs a Savior, and God loves you and cares about you, sent his son to live for you into this world for, on your behalf. And this day, if you'd repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ who lived for you and died for you and rose from the grave for you, you can be saved. Give your life to Christ today. Father, thank you for the power of the lessons to the churches. And for this church in Smyrna, we just stand amazed. Like many in countries around the world, they face persecution and problems. And yet in our own circumstances, so often we are fearful and doubting. And Lord, I pray this day you will help us to follow you. This day you help us to be faithful. This day you will help us to learn from the church of Smyrna. And this day to live out our faith. Help this church to be a 
faithful church. Help Christians hearing this message to be faithful to you regardless of circumstances. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen.